0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, everybody. The Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this podcast are free. Everything is free. There's an app. That's free. There are hundreds of episodes available for free so i count on the support of regular listeners in order to keep the train running if you would like to support the other people podcast throw a couple of dollars into the hat i would appreciate that you can do it at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod right is that what it is patreon.com slash other ppl pod
1: you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid
0: thing that a writer could do i've done
1: i think yeah. it's really beautiful mm-hmm. jesus what a struggle you know it was incredible yeah. you know it was like your head you exploded like seeing what was really there Wedding. And now here's your host, is, Brad you know? Steele.: Hey everybody, just how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People right. Podcast. Right. I'm in
0: Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Guess who I have on the program today? Guess who makes his triumphant return after six years almost? Ben Laurie. He was my guest back in 2011, the show's inaugural year. He is now back to celebrate the publication of his latest story collection called Tales of Falling and Flying. It is available from Penguin. The official publication date is September 5th. 2017 Tales of Falling and Flying by Ben Laurie, and uh, he and I are going to be in conversation in just a second. I I want to say that my thoughts are with people in Houston. If you happen to be listening from down there in Texas, uh, I have family from Louisiana. My roots, my family roots at least are uh, in Louisiana and I have some experience with a major hurricane uh, coming out of the Gulf and how it can affect family. I have cousins who lost their house. Uh, my godfather and my aunt lost their or at least got displaced from their house it was it had to be gutted and rebuilt and all this kind of stuff so it's a huge mess and there's a lot of uh, human suffering and tragedy unfolding down there and i imagine a lot of it we don't even know about yet so my thoughts are with people in houston and uh, i was talking earlier via text message with a buddy of mine who lives down there because obviously i'm sitting there watching the news i'm looking at Twitter. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, I got to check in. So I texted him, and I said, are you all right? And uh, he texted me back almost immediately, and he said, yeah, we're dry. Family and friends are safe. Thanks for thinking of me. And so naturally I was relieved. I was like, okay, good, he's safe. Uh, You know, this isn't uh, touching him in in some sort of uh, tragic way, Uh, you know, at least not in the immediate sense. And so, uh, you know, I texted him back, and I said, wow, you know, the news looks horrific. There are a lot of people getting... Uh, crushed down there by this thing. And he uh, responded by saying, yeah, you know, I've been building a boat and it's not even really all the way done yet, but we're sending it out on rescue mission, uh, missions. And he included a photograph uh, of a boat, which is, uh, it was like this beautiful uh, wooden boat with a motor on it. And it was sitting in some, uh, you know, some water that looked to be creeping up his driveway or somebody's driveway. So the water that the boat was sitting in, it was not a natural waterway. It was floodwaters. And I, I, I thought to myself, well, wow, that's really uh, admirable that he's participating in the rescue effort. And then it occurred to me that he built a boat. And I was like, wait, what? Like you built a boat? So I texted him back. I'm like, well, you know, you built a boat. I didn't know you, <laughs> I didn't know you built boats. This guy built a beautiful wooden boat. It's like 20 feet long. Built a boat. I had no idea he had that skill. I had no idea he was interested in boats and he say, he says to me, you know, it's a I guess you could call it a midlife crisis hobby. So then I immediately start to evaluate myself in comparison thinking about my, you know, my uh, existence at midlife uh, or close to it and my uh, hobbies which I think at this if I wanted to characterize myself as having like a midlife crisis hobby, it would probably be like uh, I eat edibles every once in a while but I'm certainly not building boats and participating in rescue efforts. Building a boat blows my mind. The guy built a boat. I wouldn't even know the first thing about building a boat. I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, what's the first thing you do? I think about this when I look at houses and buildings, look at a skyscraper, like somebody did the first thing that you do. What's the first thing you do? Built like a, you know, 50 story skyscraper. This guy built a boat. And a midlife crisis hobby, channeling that energy towards something positive. What am I doing? Ben Laurie is my guest. His uh, story collection Tales of Falling and Flying available from Penguin. It's always a pleasure to talk with Ben. He and I have been buddies for years. He lives here in Los Angeles. And uh, I've gotten to know him over these years and have always uh, really liked him and had a lot of admiration for the work that he does. And what I want to say about Ben's work, and I would say this even if he wasn't uh, a pal of mine, is that I truly have never met anybody who has exposure to Ben's work who doesn't love it, who doesn't have like a special affection for it. It uh, elicits a certain kind of uh, warmth and um, there's a warmth to the response that that it tends to generate. That makes sense. It's unique to him, and his work is very unique, and it's very exciting for me to get to see him have this success. So let's get to the conversation. This is Ben Laurie. His new collection, one more time, is called Tales of Falling and Flying.
1: I don't don't know. We're not going to go anywhere pleasant with this conversation. (laughs) No, I think we're all going to slowly move in towards the center of the country and north as the southern parts become... A barren, hellish wasteland. Uninhabitable. And then we're just going to be perched on the top limits of Canada for a while. And then who knows after that.
0: My parents are in Canada right now. And uh, my mom's like texted me. She's like, we're in Canada. And I texted back. I was like, buy property. Like as a joke. <laughs> but like not really. Yeah. Like, oh, no, they really should. I'm bullish on like Alberta. Yeah. You know, right now. Well, Saskatchewan. I want, I want, I'm going to go long on Saskatchewan. <laughs> Uh, well, congratulations on your new collection. Well, thank you. And I was interested in, uh, seeing the little note that you put at the, t- at the front of the book where you're like, sorry, this took so long more <laughs> soon. So, uh, why did it take so long?
1: Well, uh, I don't know. That's a complicated question. And, and how long did it take? I mean, it took six years. Well, it took four years. I know that doesn't sound like a long time, but when the first book came out, I figured that there would be another book in like a year. You know, maybe two years max, and then it was four years before I sold them the new book, and then it was two years after that before the book actually came out. Um So those two years at the end were, like, the killer for me, you know. I was like, why can't it just come out tomorrow? It's ready. It's ready. Yeah. yeah. Um It took longer for a bunch of reasons. I don't know how how far into this you want to get, but, like, uh the first one was just when that first book came out, suddenly I got a life. You know, I had to go around and read stories from the book and and sort of back up the book. And I figured that that would take like a month and then I'd be back into the book. But instead, that sort of kept going, which was great. But then I just kind of like got on this thing where I was just I'm just going around reading stories now. And that's my life. Right. Uh, Which was great. And I really loved it. And then I met all these people and suddenly I was having fun. And whereas before it was five years of just like sitting in my house, (laughs) crying and writing (laughs) stories all night long and telling people that I couldn't go out, couldn't do anything because I had to finish this book. And so uh, suddenly I didn't have to do that anymore. And so I spent some time basically just sort of enjoying life and being a writer with a book. Right. And then when that sort of started to end... Well, there are two things that happened. One was that I actually put out another book, which was a picture book, um, The Baseball Player and the Walrus. And so that took some time out of the middle section there.
0: That's a kid's book.
1: That's a kid's book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just one story that was already written, and I didn't really have to do anything, but still somehow it took all this energy and time <laughs> out of my life for about a year. Um, and then the the big thing that happened was when I wanted to go back into writing put out another book of stories. Suddenly it was scary. Um, I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to go lock myself in my house. Now go back to sitting in my chair all by myself (laughs) and just like writing all night long and like sobbing to myself (laughs) um, and hating everything and trying to fix everything and not being, you know, it's hard. Right. Um, and also, the first time I wrote a book, I basically drove myself insane and had like a manic episode. And I was worried that was going to happen if I went in like kind of like full throttle into writing. And I was like, how do I do this so it doesn't ruin my life and doesn't drive me crazy? And I was just I was scared to, to do it. Yeah. Uh, so I had to, you know, I had, like do it baby steps.
0: I was going to say, like you, you obviously did it. You I obviously, it, yeah. you know, you wrote the book, but like, did you have to modulate your workload did you have to give yourself time limits did you you know what what did it look like
1: um well in the beginning I I didn't of course have any kind of plan because I'm an idiot and so I just kind of started and went back into writing you know 25 26 hours a day <laughs> and and very quickly it was like oh no no that's this is not going to work um so then I had to back off and try and figure it out and so what I finally settled on was I started setting a timer. Um I was talking to somebody one of my girlfriend's friends was telling me about this thing called the Pomodoro technique where you basically set a timer for 25 minutes and then you just work for those 25 minutes and you do I think you're supposed to do like 10 of those a day which sounds insane not for writing this is just for accomplishing any kind of goal. And so it's like, you work for 25 minutes and you take a five minute break. Then you work for 25 minutes, you take a 10 minute break, whatever. There was a whole system. But she was telling me this and I was like, oh, that's what I should do is set a timer. Not necessarily to make myself work, but to keep myself from working too much. Uh-huh. So I would set a timer for 25 minutes and I would write for those 25 minutes, like as hard as I could, you know, not using the internet or checking the email or getting coffee or anything. And then when the timer went off, then I would walk away and sort of calm down, (laughs) make sure that my brain wasn't spinning uncontrollably. And so I did that for a while. And then I kind of got used to the idea that I could do this and that I could not, I wouldn't get lost forever in it and I wouldn't sort of spiral out of control. Um, So then I did that and I kind of settled into this rhythm where I was doing, I think three of these a day. Um, so, so the way I would do it, I'd set a timer for 25 minutes and when the timer went off, if things were going well, then I would keep going for a little while until I got bored or started to feel antsy and then I would walk away. Um, and then I would do two more of those in the day. So like at bottom, I was working what an hour and 15 minutes a day and then sometimes up to maybe three or four, depending how it was going. So I was like limiting my exposure.
0: Yeah. Well, but it makes yeah. sense because I feel like. If you're really focused and you're really working at your writing, four hours is the most anybody needs in a day.
1: You get kind of exhausted after that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, near the end of it, that all went out the window as I was, you know, I'm writing, this is a book of 40 stories. So I basically, I'm, when I'm editing, I have 40 stories inside my head that are all sort of running around trying to figure out how, how they get to the end. Um, so everything becomes very lively after a while, and once you start making connections in this story, then this one pops to mind. Oh, this is that. This one is like that. So address that same kind of thing, and then everything starts getting very happening. Yes. <laughs> and so then at that point, I was just like, okay, now I'm just now I'm just doing this. And so there was like a month or two where I was just in just energy. gone from the world. Okay, everything.
0: so. Like what does because for me what writing looks like mostly is me just staring at a flashing cursor in a quiet room getting distracted, but you're talking about having to set a timer to peel yourself away. Like, yeah. do you really get to the? Can you sit there and write for sixteen hours if you're?
1: Oh yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, and you're, and that means actually typing words most of the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two different sort of phases. There's definitely a phase that doesn't happen when I'm thinking about stories, that's not happening in my house, sitting there with a computer. Like I don't sit with a blinking cursor. If the if the file is open, I'm typing. Yeah. But, no, but there's definitely a part, like when I go to Chipotle or something, I'm sitting in Chipotle and I'm just thinking about stories and I'm going through the ones I'm still working on or things I can't figure out and I'm trying to figure those out while I'm out in the world. When I'm actually sitting at my computer, it's just like pretty much pure typing. Either I'm writing some new stuff, I'm drafting new material, or I'm just, I tend to just go back through a story over and over and over. Just like I'll open up the latest version of a story, I'll save it as a a numbered new document. I have all the, every draft saved as a numbered version of the story, and I just start at the first sentence and go through it and edit as I go to the end of the story. And they're short stories, they're, most of them around a thousand words you know, maybe three, four or five pages. So it takes me about 20 minutes to make a pass through a story. So I'll just sit down, open up, start a new version of some story I'm working on, start at the beginning, edit through to the end, close and move on to the next one that I'm working on. So I'm always leaping between stories.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny because I, like I was thinking about it on the way over. I was like, wow, you know, this is, it's got to be nice to be working in a shorter form, to be able to have that feeling of, um, finishing something more frequently to not have like all of these different narrative threads to manage like you do in a longer work. But what it sounds like is that you don't really avoid that all that much because what you wind up doing is entertaining like 40 stories, yeah. you know, so you're still juggling a, a ton of information. And I would imagine, I would imagine too, um, at least somewhat the their the stories have to be somewhat connected at least on some level, right? I mean, do you see them as interrelated or of a piece the way that like songs on an album might be you know speaking thematically to one sort of like unitary thing or
1: I don't see them that way when I'm writing them every time I'm writing a story, it feels like the first story I've ever written, and I have no idea how to do it and Nothing I have ever learned writing a story ever feels like it applies. Yeah. I mean, very small things. But um, after the stories are written, then like when I'm editing the book as a whole, then I look and I see, oh, this one is like this. This one shares that. These are, this is sort of like the horror version of the the funny story over here. Um, Does that
0: help you with sequencing? Yeah. That's how you sequence them? Like once you start? I mean, that's part of it, I would imagine. That's part
1: of it. I mean, sequencing the book was just a, um, it's a nightmare that then turns into kind of just a toss up. Right. Um, You try to put them in order and then you you think you have the perfect order. You give it to someone to read and they're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. These three stories in a row or this is blah, blah, blah. You can't do this because of that and why would you ever want to begin with this story? Um, and then eventually you just kind of throw them all up in the air and they come down and that's it. And there you go. What,
0: what about, uh, I
1: did, that's a bit of a lie. I did pick the first, I mean, I, I picked the first couple stories and I knew what story I wanted to end on and it's divided into sections. There's like three sections. So I knew what stories to begin and end each section with. It's just the intermediate ones. I just kind (laughs) of, just kind (laughs) of chuck them in there hope for the best.
0: That's fine. um, we talked last time you were on this program. You've been on once before, and it was years ago. I mean, I think yeah, you were 2011, on. 2011, I think. Okay, so yeah, so close to the beginning of the, uh, of the show. and 2011 was the first year, so you were, you were on within the first three or four months of the show's existence. And I remember talking to you, and um, you know, correct me here if I mischaracterize this, but you were talking about your uh, writing process and how you, you basically just write an entire draft straight through. Right, mm-hmm. and then you also had some charting that you were doing. Like there was some sort <laughs> of like way of illustrating like plot arc or whatever narrative arc. I remember, you had like to me, you know, like a very unique and sophisticated way of going about things. Um, can you talk about that? And then did anything change between stories for the nighttime and some for the day and uh, the new one?
1: okay um i do so i do have a diagram it's just basically it's not really very advanced but it's for pretty, me it is it's pretty simple <laughs> um you can learn it in like any book about screenwriting pretty much okay um i come from screenwriting so that's where that comes from but and so i do have a diagram of kind of like three-act structure which is basically just a way to make sure that i remember to discover what the internal conflict is in the main character like that's pretty much it yeah um and I don't use that diagram or think about that until after I've written the story and can't figure it out. That's sort of like my emergency rope. When I can't figure out what's wrong with the story, then I make a diagram and I try to isolate the, the goals and sort of the hidden desire of the character and, and do a little diagram to help with that. And in general, what I do is I start every story with just a blank page and I make sure I don't have any ideas, you know, no ideas at all. I try not to have any kind of preconceptions and just have a completely open mind. And then I just sit down and I take whatever the first image is that comes to mind. And so usually my stories involve objects, people finding things like a rock or a hat or a canoe or whatever it 's just like because that 's the image that comes to mind, so I start with an image, and then usually I just like generate a character who it, it becomes involved with that object or discovers that object. A man finds a hat, you know one day a man is walking through a forest and he stumbles over a canoe like that's and then everything after that is just sort of following through on that premise, and the first draft, which I write very fast is just. Tries to start there and carry as far through the story as I can.
0: Okay, so you're you're not the first person that I've spoken with who writes a very fast first draft, and I'm coming around on this because I'm such a slow first draft writer. But I think there's some value, like some real value, in getting it out of you without having your critical mind chattering yeah, at you. That's the whole purpose. That's, that's it. it. So from that first draft that sort of shoots out of you, that you just let it happen. To the final draft that we see in print, like, how many drafts typically are you working through?
1: Typically, I mean, on the average, it's probably around like 17 or 18, but that includes like with very small editing, like copy editing, basically. Um, sometimes when I'm very lucky, it's like one or two. Yeah. I think there's maybe like three or four stories I publish that are essentially first drafts where I've changed one or two words.
0: Wow. Um, Which ones are those?
1: Um, the duck story, I, I changed the final sentence, uh, the octopus story. Those might be the only, did you know it
0: when it happened that like, you're like, okay, that one's just good. Like, do you know what I'm saying? How soon after you had written it, where you're like, this one's, there's nothing left to do here.
1: I don't remember. I mean, I felt pretty good after the duck one. I remember, I don't actually remember writing the octopus one. Why? I don't remember writing most of them, you know, they happen so fast and I don't, you know, it's not like an intentional process. It's not like I have an idea and I have to sit down and execute it. And did I do it well or poorly? You know, it's like I sit down and I think of an image and then I'm just like following this character. It's like, it's just like it's happening and I'm describing it.
0: Right. You're watching it. it. It's
1: like a dream. Mm -hmm. It's like writing down a dream as it happens. Um, and a lot of times when I read the stories back, I don't remember them at all.
0: So how do you initiate I mean, you initiate it by sitting down without any ideas, looking at a blank screen. You write it on a computer or on by hand? On a computer. Okay. And then whatever comes to mind first, you just pay um, credence to that. You write it down and you start following. To yeah. get yourself into this space, do you have any rituals? Like, are you caffeinated? Are you exercising? Are you... Med- <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, is there something you do to get yourself into a creative space where... Because it strikes me as like a, a really hyper-concentrated place to be creatively. Like you've got to be really zeroed in and, and your, your antenna has to be up. You have to be receptive to those um, visions.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think this is why I used to write at night because there was nothing else going on so I could tune everything out and there was nothing else to do. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't talk to anybody. It's three in the morning. What are you going to do? Okay, it's story time. Um, I don't have any rituals. I used to drink a whole lot of tea. Like I would make a cup of tea and sit down and write a story. I don't really even drink tea anymore. I don't...
0: Why not? What happened to the tea?
1: Oh, you know, the tea was like I was trying not to drink coffee, so I verged over into tea, but then at some point I went back to coffee and... Okay. But coffee's not really any fun.
0: You get a little cracked out yeah. if you drink too much.
1: Yeah. I should probably start drinking tea again. It
0: might be. What yeah. about yerba mate? That's sort of like a... That's, that's the a one
1: fin- where okay. you have to drink it with like a metal spoon or
0: something <laughs> well you drink it out of a gourd yeah uh, it's called a bombilla i believe I, i'm I not gonna be. drink that okay yeah. well, i don't know maybe maybe in the next book you can, someday yeah. someday someday um
1: i feel like there was more to that question
0: well it was like know? do you have any rituals do you have to uh get yourself like into a like are the things that you do to get yourself into that space but it makes sense to me that I guess this is a question. Do you still do that at night? Is it that when you do most of your creative work is in the middle of the night?
1: No, I don't really live at night anymore. Oh. Um, I I don't I mean I'm still I'm sure people would still consider me a night person. I go to bed at like maybe two now, um and get up at like ten as opposed to going to bed at like nine AM <laughs> yeah. and waking up at five PM. Um I still want to, but it's Is that how
0: you're wired? Yeah. You're, no, you're nocturnal.
1: I'm nocturnal.
0: But you have like other obligations that make you have to live during the day.
1: Yeah. Also, I have a girlfriend now. And That's hard. That's a hard sell unless yeah. she's
0: nocturnal too.
1: Yeah. No, she's not. And also I teach now. There's just like stuff that happens during the day that I have to actually be there for.
0: It's <laughs> a bummer, man. Yeah, it sucks.
1: But <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, wait, what was I going to say?
0: I don't know about writing, getting, right, yourself, writing, ready, getting yourself ready, nocturnal. So when do not- you write? When did you write this book? Did you write? You write like usually between like eight at night to midnight or two or.
1: Well, now it's like I try to do it throughout the day. because mm. I try not to. I try to like I'll get up, whatever, have breakfast and some coffee, and I'll do like one of those twenty-five minute things, and then I'll go off and you know do my errands, go to the post office, yeah, whatever, come back, do another. I try to spread it out now. Um, but when it comes down to crunch time, when I'm like editing the book, then it's, I'm back up to late night. Although not, I don't watch the sunrise anymore. and That has <laughs> not happened in years. That's
0: kind of, I mean, I, I, I am not nocturnal. Like I can't do that. I mean, I, I guess I could if I had to, but like, it's not natural to me like in terms yeah. of my body clock, but like seeing the sunrise is something that I truly wish I could do more.
1: It's terrible. You think so? oh it's all it's horrible it means I, the night's over there's nothing worse than you're writing and then the sun starts to come up and you're like all bleary eyed and yeah. then people start coming on the internet good morning everybody <laughs>
0: <laughs> can't wait for the glorious day i remember that from like you know my younger days like at parties like when sun when you're up and this you're you know at a party and then the sun comes up things turn dark very quickly like yeah. emotionally everyone's like oh, sure. what am i doing with my life
1: yeah i remember sometimes i'd be i'd go out for breakfast i would always this is how i would know that things were going poorly in my life so i'd, I'd write all night and then i'd go out for breakfast at at Millie's on sunset yeah. and i'd just be totally dead like completely spent and i cuz i'm writing it's always a very emotional process cuz i'm an idiot and I'll, i'm just like sobbing and then i like go to Millie's and i'm just like sitting at the counter eating <laughs> eating my breakfast looking like i just got divorced or something and and been on crystal meth for a couple of days I was
0: gonna say this, this is like such a hard come down but yeah it kind of is though yeah you know and it's d de- and it's in de- writing like the all the stuff you were saying about sort of dreading it and being afraid of going back into that space like it's scary it can be scary and it can be uh tough emotional work yeah. and i don't want to like you know i've run into this before where i start to make it sound like it's like the hardest job in the world. I'm not saying that like, it's a privilege to get to be creative, but like it doesn't, I think it can be both true that it's a privilege to be creative and to have the time to do this sort of stuff. Uh, and it can also be true that it's difficult emotional work, uh, that one has like a natural or has a right to feel aversion to, or to be afraid of.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I love it and it's, there's a real sense of, uh, joy in it. I mean, when you finish a story, and it's right. You finally, it all clicks into place and it makes sense. And you're like, oh, there it is. And there it's it like, is. that's a thrill and a sense of accomplishment um, that I don't get anywhere else. And yeah, it's hard emotionally, but that's why the stories are good. You know, like, I, like, wh- were you going to read a story where it just doesn't affect you? Like, that's not going to be a good story. Right. Like, that's the only way you get a good story is by, at least for me, is my belief, you know, <laughs> Um, so that's just part of the process. Yeah, I I know I I make it sound like it's some sort of terrible thing and it's, it's not that it's terrible, but it's, it's It's emotional. Yeah. It's It's emotional.
0: emotional. So animals, animals, animals figure into your stories quite frequently. They do. What's up with you and animals?
1: (laughs) This is always strange for me. Um, So when I first started writing stories, I was writing horror stories. I mean, I started writing stories in like a horror writing class. I love horror. I also love comedy. And I love cartoons, especially Warner Brothers cartoons. Um, And I always loved Aesop's Fables when I was little. But when I started writing, I was writing horror stories. And they were always about like there's like some guy – And he's just having a real horrible time. He's usually like being chased around in a maze. Someone's trying to stab him. There's like monsters. And I was just writing these stories. They're very heavy stories about some nameless guy for a long time. And after I wrote a bunch of these, I was like, I need to do something else. Like just for a minute. And so it just sort of struck me to write a story about an animal. Like just as a joke, basically. So I wrote like a talking animal story Um, and then then I finished it and I was like, ha ha, now now I'll go back to what I do. And then every now and then when things would get like too much, when the existential horror was too much, then I would write an animal story. It was like a little event. Um, And then when the book came out, my first book, those animal stories were the ones that like everyone loved like those were the ones that ended up on this american life the duck one and the one about the moose who goes skydiving um i love and, that story yeah me too i yeah. mean i love it too it's just like i didn't think that that was what i did um i just thought that was sort of like a side side thing and those are the ones i always read it that's readings. how i feel about this
0: podcast but <laughs> <laughs> everyone's like i love the podcast we like, go oh, really okay you're having yeah. five years six years later
1: yeah so then I just sort of kept doing them, and and now I'm the guy who writes animal stories. But you
0: know, like it, I think that there's something sort of psychedelic about it. There's something um, subversive about using um, characters or um, a context that people usually associate with childhood, mm-hmm. and then sort of turning it around and making it like because these are these are four adults. These stories. I mean, I guess they can play. I think you have. Uh, probably a strong adolescent readership or like you can, you know, um, that your work could really resonate with people across a broad Hmm. age range. Um, because they are accessible, but there's a lot happening thematically that I would not normally associate with like, say a six year old. Yeah, There's (laughs) a lot
1: of knives and madness and death.
0: Stuff happens, but it's Um, funny, but it's like, I I can see why people love them. I, I mean, that's part of it for me, but then the other thing too, uh, is that they were created in a sense, in a state of play, like where you're playing, you were yeah. joking with yourself. It was fun. It was the pure imagination at work, you know, like whether you're working in a, in a realistic vein or you're working in a surrealistic vein, when that spirit is infused into the work, things tend to go well and readers tend to, re- you know, people tend to respond well. Yeah, absolutely. So, but it's like, you got to almost trick yourself into doing it. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, so just joke around with yourself, I guess, or make up games. I don't know. You know, like I was talking to, uh, Jonathan Saffron four, who, um, was telling me about his writing process and how he'll sit in a room, not too dissimilar from you. And just like, you know, he'll be in a hotel room working or something and he'll just like fixate on like a picture on the wall or on the clock that's on the nightstand mm-hmm. and he'll use it as like just a starting point, but it'll often wind up figuring into the work. Uh, and it's, it's that it's that kind of, uh, tricking yourself into playing, you know, mm-hmm. it's not that serious, just getting started, but it's that stuff that winds up being the gold. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it's an easy way in, you know, you have to find some way into your unconscious or a way into the, the stuff that you, that's hard to talk about. Cause that's where, that's where the real heart of the story is, but you can't just dive right into that kind of stuff. Cause nobody wants to start there. You can't start a story
0: like we started this podcast. Yeah. You
1: have to, you have to lead with the squirrel that's hopping by out the window. And then once people are,
0: (laughs) once they get in, once you've got them hooked, then you just bury them with the existential dread. Yeah. Um, do you have any plans to work long form? I might've asked you this last time, and I'm sure people probably ask you because you work in short form. The stories, like you say, are a thousand words long. Have you ever thought to yourself, like I've got to try a novel or are you happy in this, um, working in this vein and content to keep doing it.
1: Well, I don't do these on purpose. You know, this isn't, it's not like I one day decided I wanted to write very short stories that were a thousand words. I'm just writing stories and that's how they come out. Um, I certainly, around the time that the first book came out, I felt a lot of pressure to write a novel. Don't even ask me where that pressure came from. It's not like anyone called me up. It's not like the people at Penguin were like, hey, okay. Where's somewhere. the novel came? Yeah. Um, nobody ever said anything to me. I yeah. just felt like, oh, now I have to write a novel. Um, or at least somehow make these stories longer. Because uh, people are always talking about how they're so short, which just bugs me. You know, it's like, they're just my stories. Like, Can't we just talk about whether they're good or not? Like, yeah. why do we have to talk about how many words they are? Um, so I spent some time trying to make the story longer and I just couldn't do it. Like there's still my stories. It's just now I'm like just jamming extra words in here and like the hopes that somehow a novel or a regular sized story is going <laughs> to emerge. And so I could do that, you know, I'm like, Oh yeah, I got this story pumped up to like <laughs> 2,500 words. And then I'd read through it and I'd be like, this is terrible. I'm like oh, all these words. This is not how it's done. Right. You know, like people write longer stories because they have a voice that naturally speaks that way. And this is just how I tell stories.
0: But I should also say in your defense that it's actually really hard to do what you're doing. Like, I think it's hard to write a a 1000 word story that has a narrative arc, that has rich characters, that has a thematic weight like, like it looks easier. Like it's like, you know, minimalism in literature. I think a lot of times if that's what you want to call it can trick a reader into thinking that it's much easier to do than it actually Mm -hmm. is. Like that's, there's a lot of work that goes into making things uh, go down that easy.
1: I guess, I mean, I don't experience it that way. You know, like I could never write a novel, like that's just impossible. I couldn't imagine what people do, how you can possibly come up with so many words,
0: but you know what? One day, Ben, you could be sitting yeah. in front of that blank canvas and sure. the and hat could appear and then suddenly yeah. like 45, 50,000 words later,
1: it could yeah. end. Who knows? I actually, last year, maybe it was a year and a half ago, but I actually had a, a novel idea that came to me um, and I was like, oh, there it is. Here's the first chapter. These are the characters. It's basically like, not to give away the whole thing, but it was, it was like a, like a, what's that guy's name? The guy everybody hates. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Franzen. Franzen? Yeah, Jonathan Franzen. It was like a Franzen-style novel with alternating chapters of each character's point of view that takes place over a number of years. And it was about a band. It was like a book about a thrash metal band in the 80s. It breaks up, and then what happens to these people, and blah, 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 blah. And I could see the whole thing there, and I wrote the first chapter, and I know how it ends. I know the final line, and... And I was like, okay, so am I really going to take, like, two years now writing a realistic novel in, like, the style of Jonathan Franzen about a band? Like, anybody could do that if they wanted to spend two years doing that. Not anybody. Not anybody, but kind of anybody. Like, it's just, you just have to put your mind to that. It's not like it takes anything. It's just some people interacting and whatever. Some stuff happens. Um, not to whatever, (laughs) to me, it doesn't seem very interesting. Like I, I like the idea of it, it had a good title, which I'm not going to say in case any day I I actually sit down and write it. Right. But I was like, okay, so I could take two years and write this, which is basically homework because I know how the whole thing goes and now I just have to write all these things. It's homework or I could write, I, I mean, how many stories could I write in two years? I could write like 200, 300 stories if I put that amount of work into it and those stories, I would probably really like Like them.
0: them. What is the difference? What is the difference between the stories and the novel that you were just describing? I mean, aside from like the length and I guess like the, the novel that you were talking about is more of a realistic, you know, it's more of a realistic vein.
1: Yeah. Um, well the novel to me, there's nothing in it that I don't, that's going to surprise me. There's not, I don't see anything new in that. Um, Every time I write a story, I have literally no idea what's going to happen. Um, and I know that something like fantastical is probably going to happen because they tend to happen. It's not like it's a rule. That's just what tends to happen in my stories. I don't know why. Um, but I know something interesting is going to happen that I have not seen before or don't see coming. It's going to be in like an, a discovery, the process of writing a story. I'm going to go through something unexpected. Whereas writing that novel, I can see how I could write it well and it would be done and I could, it would probably sell a shitload more than a collection of stories. Um, but it just seems like I'm just, it's just going to be about some people interacting and there's going to be like some scenes where people are playing music and yelling <laughs> at each other. And there's some scenes where somebody is like in prison and bad stuff happens and yeah. somebody tries to get a job. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's, I, this? it's not you. Yeah. It's not you. Yeah. Like what is going to be different?
0: Right. So it's like this, the element of surprise, it's the element, like the act of creation is not nearly as exciting. Yeah. That makes sense to me. But it's also like, I think when somebody is successful in their art and, um, especially when they're doing something that people consider unique, which is, I think how a lot of people feel about your work, like no one else is doing what Ben Laurie's doing. And so that's really cool. And if that means you're writing 1,000 word stories for the rest of your life, keep doing it. Yeah, I'm okay with it now. I mean, you yeah, like was... own that. Own that yeah. turf. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I, that's my career advice to you. Like, it, like if, it's, <laughs> if it's not broken, don't fix it. Like, yeah. if you're having fun doing it and people are enjoying them, like, I think as these stories accrue and as the books pile up, um, you know, people are going to find it. And that, that would be my bet for you, you yeah. know? And it's always the challenge of like, how do you keep. Being able to do the work because I mean, yeah. you need the time and the space. And... Gotta buy my vegan hot dogs. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> How are the, Are you vegan now? That... No, I'm not vegan. I'm oh. vegetarian. I would like to be vegan because I really like animals. Yeah. But it's impossible to eat vegan. It's hard. Outside of the house, it's really hard. Well, I and mean, it's like, like you never even know butter. what's
0: in stuff. Like, you know, yeah. you gotta really be reading labels. So. And
1: you have to be kind of an asshole. You can't go to anybody's house without being like the problem. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah plus i while I was worried about giving a bacon i didn 't think I could ever live without bacon. That was no problem at all, but uh living without cheese is really hard, and getting rid of butter i didn 't even see that one coming. I never thought of butter,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah right but
1: butter butter is
0: when did you make this spice shift?
1: of life uh, about a year and a half ago.
0: what prompted it? Just um, you know. I
1: accidentally watched uh a movie about slaughterhouses a documentary about slaughterhouses that'll do it and it wasn't even like a decision you know I just saw it and I was like oh right like, I can't do that
0: yeah what um, was the movie
1: it was a really bad movie it was, I still had Netflix then and I would just watch whatever it told me to watch <laughs> and one time I watched this great <laughs> that's movie. that's how it
0: works by the way yeah. you just watch whatever Netflix tells you to watch
1: I, yeah I, I watched this great movie called King Corn which I highly recommend.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About like high fructose corn syrup. And- yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That movie is great. And then because of that, they were like, hey, Ben, the movie you want to watch is this crappy movie called Veggicated. <laughs> and it was a, like a pilot for some series somebody wanted to make about people going vegan. And they just picked some people off the street. They were like, hey, want to go vegan and be in our movie? And they were like, "I don't no, but okay. And then they followed them around for a month as they went vegan and and they took him to like the slaughterhouse here's what a slaughterhouse is like and showed you that and
0: see but i you know it's 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 nice to hear you say that because that's definitely a big part of what did it for me and like i i'm not going to try to uh, convert i'm just speaking to my experience and your experience but like when i have conversations with like my mom or something like this mostly happened like years ago when i was first doing this It's just like, can you like watch this video? Like watch this. And people are just like, mom's like, no, thanks.
1: Yeah. They don't want to see it, which I
0: understand. I I, totally understand, you know, but like, if you actually do confront the reality of how that food gets to your plate, like it's, it's like you say, it's like, it's not even really a choice. You're just like, Oh, I can't do that. Like it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, Do you feel better? Like, do you feel different?
1: No, I don't feel different at all.
0: Okay. You were healthy before. You're like, I'm still. I'm
1: just, No, I'm not healthy. I'm just tired. I've always been like really tired and nothing ever fixes it. But <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah, whatever. I won't get into all that. But yeah, no, I don't feel any different.
0: You didn't notice any change at all. I
1: didn't notice a single change. Interesting. Yeah.
0: but uh, But you're saving animals.
1: Yeah, through your, I like, like animals and
0: and you know smaller carbon footprint. There's a lot of good. I mean, not to sit here and pat myself on the back too much, but yeah, I mean, it's not going to do, do any
1: good. We're all going down the tubes, but <laughs> at least I personally am not stabbing bunny rabbits. Right,
0: exactly. Know, so. Yeah. Well, um, do you have plans? Because like this is another thing. You know, you you alluded to it a little bit ago. Uh, you know, being on this American Life. One of the things that I feel like your work lends itself well to is performance mm-hmm. and radio. Uh, are you going to be doing more of that with uh, the release of this book? I hope so. Yeah.
1: I don't, I mean, This American Life, which was like the best thing that ever happened to me as a writer, is a bit of like a black box. Um, you know, like I have email addresses for people there and they're very nice. I talk to them I'm like, Hey, you got this story that they'll email me. Hey, do you have anything? I'll send them. And then like nothing, it never comes to anything. And then one day I'll just get a call out of the blue from somebody else over there. Hey, we're using your story. Will you come in and record it? Um, so over time I've learned to stop <laughs> trying to make that happen right. and just sit back and embrace it when it comes. Yeah. Um, I hope that continues to happen. Uh, I made a couple of videos, actually a bunch of videos of me reading stories from the book, just yesterday. Actually,
0: what like with your phone,
1: um, or did you have somebody
0: come over and shoot no, it? Really I have a friend
1: it? who's like, like a commercial director, and so we made some. Um, so we'll put those up, and hopefully someone will care.
0: What did you do? Was there any kind of like aesthetic to it? Like you know, what I am saying, like were you lit a certain way, or was it like a certain background? You know, backdrop or.
1: Um, we tried to do it. We had a long talk about this, and um, I tried to do it uh, some way. So they weren't connected to the real world, you know, cause I didn't, you know, like, are we going to, where are we going to do it? It's like sitting in my house with like my cup of tea. It's like, no, <laughs> that's not really what these stories are like. Yeah. They kind of take place in this other world. Um, so eventually it was just a very simple thing. It's just, it's like b- black backdrop and I'm just sitting there wearing my black t-shirt and I'm reading these stories. So um, it's basically
0: but, like your disembodied head. It's reading.
1: my, it's my disembodied upper body. Gotcha. And head. And head. And cut <laughs> off my head. We'll do that next time. I didn't have that idea. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I'm going around and, you know, there'll be a little book tour and I'll go read stories. And th- I, I would love to find some way to just go read stories. Like if I could just go out and read stories to people every night, like that's what I want to do. Whoever's listening to this show. Yeah. And you know how to get it so I can just go around, travel around, read stories every night to people. Uh, call me cause that's what I want to do.
0: God, there's gotta be a way. I feel like there's gotta be a way. I don't know exactly what it is, or maybe you could do some sort of podcast, but I guess like it's more fun to do it with live audience. Yeah. Like that's the fun. That's the fun. Yeah. It's connecting with people.
1: Yeah. And listening they, and they generally the way it goes ideally is like you start reading, they laugh and laugh. And then at some point they stop laughing cause <laughs> it starts getting serious and it gets really quiet. I love that.
0: You live for that. that, that that's silence. the best moment. That, yeah.
1: Oh, they stop laughing. We're good now.
0: So. Well, that means you've got a room full of adults who suddenly care about the fate of a duck. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. then you know that the magic trick has worked. Yeah. Right? Yep. Well, that's awesome. So, um, I like to go back to where we kind of started with regard to the little, uh, short preface at the beginning of the book where you say more soon, have you been actively working? Like, while well, this thing has been, uh, taking its time getting to to print, I'm I'm imagining you've continued to work.
1: Yeah, I have a whole other book that's pretty much ready to go. It needs maybe uh, uh, three or four months of work, but it's ready to go.
0: That's good. Yeah, so now that's you're like a, you're a book ahead of yourself. Yes, right. In well, terms I'm
1: of... I'm a book on time with myself. Yeah. I think yeah.
0: But I mean, like from a publication schedule standpoint. Oh yeah. Like because I I think that um, this is important to people who want to at least make an attempt at making a living at this, you do have to publish relatively regularly, unless you have like just a home run bestseller, you have to keep feeding the stray cats. Otherwise, you know, what's the, so.
1: I had like an epiphany about this at the beginning of last year, I guess, 2016. I, I suddenly did the math, suddenly out of the blue did the math. I don't know why. And I realized that if I published a book a year, then I could actually like live on that. I wouldn't have to teach and everything would be great. So I spent last year um, trying, writing a third book of stories as sort of like an experiment to see if I could write a book a year because that's a lot. It's like a story every eight days, I think, is how it, if I had 40 stories in a
0: book. Like a completed story.
1: Yeah. Um, and I was like, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to try. And um, I pretty much did it.
0: I, cause you I remember know. seeing you at a party yeah. and I don't know where we were, but I, I remember talking to you and you said, uh, I'm going to write a book a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I was probably, I think it was pretty soon after you had made that. Yeah. I want to say you said it was a recent thing you're like, I just yeah. decided I'm going to do a book a year. And so you did it. You wrote a book.
1: Well, I did write a book. I cannot write a book a year is what I realized. Like I could conceivably write a book a year, but, um, the way the scheduling is going to work or would work would be, I would not only have to write that book a year, but I would also be in the editing process of the book that I just wrote. And I can't write a new book and edit the last book at the same time.
0: Do you have any, do you have any fear of the well running dry creatively? Like, like, or I guess, but the thing is your process is so unique and you have this amazing ability to just start with a blank slate and you know, like barf out a draft, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, (laughs) but you know what I'm saying? Like, like that process works for you. Do you ever worry like, Oh, I'm going to, if I, if I do too much too fast, I'm going to deplete myself or, you know, is there any fear of that?
1: I don't worry about like depleting it. I used to, you know, when I first started writing, part of the reason that I kept writing so much and sort of pushed myself so hard was I was just scared that like, if I closed the computer and went to sleep, then I would not be able to do it again the next day. So I was just like, I got to do this now while I still know how to do it. Um, and I've sort of learned over time that no, I can do this. It's not going to go away. Um, I do worry about driving myself crazy by pushing too hard. Um, so I have to keep an eye on that. Um, but yeah, I can't write a book a year. I learned that. So I, but I can probably write a book every two years, two and a half years. That seems like a
0: more sane yeah. pace. I mean, I know there are yeah. people who are—I forget what it's called. What's that thing where you like literally can't stop writing? But graphomania. Yeah, graphomania. Yeah. I mean, there are people who have that and who really like Joyce Carol Oates or whatever. You yeah. know, like she publishes like every like month. But uh, yeah, that's amazing. For most people, it's—I mean, I think two, every two years it would, would that alone would be a hugely aggressive. Yeah, Um, and difficult feat. That's
1: probably it's probably going to be another six years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talk to you in twenty twenty four, but Um, you know it's
1: good to have a goal.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, but I like it's a noble goal, and I think uh, you know, I say what I just said about how difficult it is to to write on that timeline. But the truth is, if you are doing the work, punching the clock, you know all the dreadful ways you could characterize it. Seems like it should be a manageable feat, provided your life can accommodate it time wise. I mean you have to have the time and space to do it. But if you do yeah. that's two years is reasonable.
1: And you know, theoretically at least it should get easier as you go. You know, the more books you have sitting on the shelves, hopefully the more money you have coming in and the fewer classes you have to teach to make, yeah. to make the money, to pay the rent, to have the time to write the stories. Yeah. What about what about like
0: adapting? I feel like you could adapt Like, you mentioned Aesop. Like, I kind of feel like you're working in that vein, like for the modern age. You know, you're writing fables for the modern age, and I think a lot of your stories would lend themselves well to animation. Uh, I would love
1: that. That's the dream, you know? I mean, I sort of see them in my mind as cartoons as I'm writing them, and I would really love to just to have, like, a television show, like an animated, like, anthology, like Twilight Zone-style show, Uh, just a story each week or couple stories each week, but yeah, I don't know how to do that. I,
0: well, I was trying to encourage, remember like a few years ago, I was like, dude, we got to take the man and the moose and make it into a TV series. I'm mm-hmm. like, but like extrapolated into like, you know, they're like a crime fighting duo or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I feel like that should, that should be a possibility in this world to yeah. imagine, you know, I, the problem is getting stuff like that done, you know, tends to require like Wait, we're in the middle of this conversation. Something's running around on the roof of my garage. It's Someone's
1: like... <laughs> dragging a coffin across the <laughs> <Someone's your>
0: roof. <laughs> I think it's like some sort of squirrel or cat or something. Uh anyway, sorry for the interruption. Right.
1: Yeah, you have to spend the time on that.
0: Well, you have to spend the time on that, but you also have to I don't know, there's just a lot of human logistics usually. Those things yeah. don't usually happen quickly and easily. Like you have to tolerate a bunch of bullshit. And then you also often have to invite other human beings into the creative process who might not share your vision, you might yeah. hate their guts you know like it gets sure. com- it gets a lot more complicated when there are more cooks in the kitchen. but I think that, that having said that it doesn't it 's not impossible that such a thing could happen and yeah. I would love to see like a Ben Lurie animated twilight zone i would I would too and you think it would be animated
1: i mean it wouldn 't have to be it 's just I mean, actually, nowadays, I'm sure if they ever did it, it would be live action and it would just be a bunch of like CG crap, right? which would make me sad yeah, uh, because that doesn't look real to me. And the thing I like about animation is it's, it's not real, but it's, it doesn't not look real. It just looks like this other thing.
0: Is there a style of animation that you like the best? Like, do you like claymation? Do you like the old, you you mentioned the Warner Brothers cartoons.
1: It should be a Warner Brothers cartoon version of the Twilight Zone.
0: Like old school. Yeah, old school animation. Yeah, like, not like the Pixar digital animation. No,
1: no 3D. It yeah. should be like cell animation. Huh. No one is ever going to do this.
0: No, I, you but, know what? I'm going to I'm I'm yeah. in the process of trying to get. Um, this is the first I've ever mentioned this, and so this will this will be good because it'll put me on the hook. I'm going to try to wedge this into my life as well. But uh, I had an idea on Twitter where I was going to do like a, a very simple animation, like old school animation. Uh, called baked dads, which is like two middle-aged men walking around, having a conversation. And, uh, I think I might actually make some episodes of it,
1: but animation.
0: Well, a buddy of mine that I went to film school with is an animator and, um, he's going to coach me through it all, but I think it'll be like old school cell animation. Like it'll be, it's going to be actually fairly rudimentary. Yeah. Uh, which I kind of like, you know, so we're not going to try to do, I, I don't, have the knowledge to do like a Pixar and I I don't think I would want to.
1: (laughs) That would be great. If you sitting in your garage made a Pixar,
0: I'm just not going to compete with Pixar from my uh, sweltering garage. So, uh, yeah, I think baked ads is going to be a thing. I I have this vision where I'm going to do 10 episodes and then put them out and just see what the title. Yeah. I mean, I, I just feel like with marijuana becoming more mainstream, um, and you know, the legalizations happening, I think it does open itself like, like, this is not at all what it would be about but i do think that like culturally it's interesting that like if it's as legal as a six pack of beer and and by the way like prior to legalization this was already happening all over the place people smoke everyone smokes pot uh but i like the idea of a show about like you know responsible good dads who just like are (laughs) baked and talking to one another. Cause like we already have seen a million times in our culture, like the dad's having like a glass of wine or a beer at the party, yeah. but we don't see this. And I also, you know, I know from experience, not that I smoke a ton of pot, but I know from experience that, uh, the conversations that happen when you're stoned differ pretty strongly from what you have when you're drunk and they're not, they're, they're often like very interesting conversations. That's oh what I like God. about it. It's like two dudes walking around big talking about like Kim Jong-un. Yeah. But like trying to get to the heart of it.
1: People talk about things they're actually interested in. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. So anyway. They
1: can't help talking about
0: it. <laughs> yeah, right. But maybe, uh, you know, maybe we'll bring uh, an animal into it somehow. I can bring you on as a writer. Right. I'll
1: the bring ba- that squirrel.
0: The baked, yeah. The baked dads encounter a, a rabid squirrel who, uh, you know, has magical powers or something. but. Um, anyway, uh, that's all good. I would, I would hope that that happens for you. I'll put that in my, uh, in my brain. I'll wish, I'll wish for that to come true. Wish file. And, uh, I guess like the other thing I want to talk to you about, you know, just to sort of spin this 180 degrees is to talk about how you have, uh, endured like the past seven or eight months in this country, you know, because I know even though you work in this kind of surrealistic vein or whatever, and. You know, you're reading tons of books and you're working hard on your fiction. Uh, I know just from knowing you and from following your Twitter, you get a sense of a person's uh, political consciousness and how much they're paying, how much attention they're paying to this. Like you're paying attention, you're spending, you know, you know what's happening maybe more so than you wish you did, but like, how has it been for you and like, how are you getting by?
1: Um, it was really hard for a while. It was also hard. It was hard before the election because I totally knew that he was going to win. I mean, I knew from the day that he announced his candidacy that he was going to win. Why? Because that's the guy who everyone that I went to high school with wants to be president. All those, like, horrible people on the football team and all their, like, idiot girlfriends, that's the guy they want. That, like, big, blustery fucking idiot. That's the guy they think is, like, in charge and should be let, to make all the choices.
0: Embody success. Yeah. Like, and he,
1: yeah, and he's a billionaire, so obviously he knows what he's doing. I remember that, yeah, the day that he announced his candidacy, everybody was laughing and what's the name of that guy who is that comedian who has the new show who not doesn't do it anymore? Why can't I remember? Stephen like, Colbert? No, he's John Stewart. John Stewart. Yeah. And John Stewart's like making this big thing about how funny and how great it is that Donald Trump has announced his candidacy. It's a great thing for comedy. And it's just like, what are you talking about? Like, he's going to win. Like, there's no question that he's going to win. And everybody's laughing. And I just couldn't believe it. And it was like coming for so long. And I was like, it's happening, and everybody's laughing and i mean and i was too you know like everybody watched those republican debates and everybody's loving it watching him just destroy all those other assholes up there and everybody's just that's like the greatest thing that's ever happened and i'm like yeah and now he's going to do it to the democrats and he's going to win he's going to win and everybody is laughing the whole time and then, of course, he won. And of course, when he actually won, still, even though I knew it was happening, it was like the worst thing that ever. Yeah. Like, how can this happen? Right. Like, why don't people see that this is the the end, you know? Um, yeah. And then, then after, then there was, of course, everyone went completely insane for four or five months. And, um, And I sort of spun a little out of control and it was like, how am I going to live in this new world? And like everything I was posting on like Twitter and Facebook was about all this. And, um, and of course not doing anybody like any good and just contributing to the spotlight on this, on this guy. And, and eventually I was like, okay, look, I can't, I'm not doing anybody any good, so at that point, I I don't make a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> but I was like, um, I just set up like monthly donations. donations to all the places that I cared about. I mean, not all the places, but as many as I could. I was like, okay, look, I just need to make some money, make sure that the money I make goes to these causes. And all I can do is write. That's all I do. So now I'm just going to write stories. And the money from that I will send to these causes as much as I can. And I can't like devote my life to drawing more attention to this guy that everybody already knows about. Like everybody knows, like I'm not helping by pointing out that this guy's an asshole. Like everybody knows this, this. It does
0: feel like it's getting to that point. I mean, yeah. like at this, like seven months into it or whatever it is, if you haven't figured it out, yeah. there's no hope. Yeah. And for everybody else, like, I think there is something I think there is there is something, too, like using your little miniature microphone on social media to bring attention to stories that matter and to reinforcing reinforcing what a shithead he is. Yeah. Um, because, but, it can't be just
1: like, but it can't just be like 24 hours a day. And that's all you're doing. Right. People tune it out. That's right. I mean, nobody's following me who disagrees with me anyway. Right. You know? Right. If there's like one person. I have like one Facebook friend who's like a Trump person. And like, I'm not going to convince them they're, they're an idiot. Come on, Ben, you know, make like, it happen. Like I, <laughs> make the conversion.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a real, uh, quandary as like, you know, uh, offense after offense, after offense, after offense, after offense. And they te- seem to be escalating in terms of how offensive they are as they pile up. It's it harder and harder to, to wrap my head around how somebody could be on board with this. It's like, oh. what is going on inside of you? Like I am. I am missing something like huge, yeah. and uh i I don't know like did you have a sense that American politics was um vulnerable to this? I guess you must have if you knew Trump, Donald Trump was going to win oh, yeah, sure, right yeah. when he announced, but like did you have a real sense of of dread you know ten twelve fifteen like have you always felt it sp- like moving in this direction, or was there a moment or a time that you felt like things tipped
1: uh, uh i mean it no, I mean, my whole life it has been like this, you know, I grew up, my dad was, who was like a very left-wing person, but I grew up with my dad li- listening to like right-wing talk radio every morning. Um, and what, just to do
0: like oppo research? or yeah, to pretty find much. Out?
1: I don't know why he did it. It used to drive me nuts. It was, he got really upset. He'd be yelling at the radio and I was like, why do we have to, <laughs> why is this happening? Yeah. Um, but, uh.
0: I've been that guy before. Yeah. Like so, listening. Because it is like. There's some. There's something to, like, understanding the media that... Because, that, like, you, you really do... If you want to have any idea what's going on inside of people who are gung-ho for Trump, you have to ingest some of the media they ingest because they, they have an entirely different diet than you yeah. or I. Um, but, man, that's some toxic stuff. Yeah. It's upsetting to, uh, to listen to and to watch.
1: Yeah. But I grew up with my dad basically being like, look, this is happening. Like, these people are here it's very real you can't ignore it you know and as much as i would have preferred not to ever listen to that it it does make you aware
0: yeah so your dad you said was a left wing guy was he politically
1: active no
0: just a political consumer of yeah. media yeah. um and what do your folks do? Did I ever ask you this? I don't know. Like, were they literary folks or like what?
1: Uh, they, they met in graduate school in a class on Milton's Paradise Lost. They were English professors. Uh-huh. Um, but then my dad, who did not enjoy it, he went back um, at, to the town where he grew up and took over his father's furniture store. His okay. actually his grandfather's furniture store. Um, my mom continued to teach up until I was, I think, 10 or 12. And, and now they both work at the furniture store. What's it called? It's called Harry Laurie Fine Furniture, Dover, oh. New Jersey, 07801. <laughs> Go okay. buy some furniture. Do they
0: make furniture? No, they sell furniture. They sell. Okay, so yeah. they're not like hand crafting no. furniture. No. That's kind of cool.
1: I guess. Family it's a cool people? store. I mean, it's a great place to play hide and seek.
0: Do you ever get, you ever get uh, furniture? Like you ever like be like, I need a chair?
1: Uh, when I was growing up... Sure, we just had whatever furniture we wanted, and when I went to college, we could take the furniture to college. When I moved out to L.A., like they can't really ship furniture; it's, yeah, it's cost prohibitive. Right. Yeah. Bam, dude. Yeah, I know. You
0: don't get to. You don't get to enjoy. I the will fruits. say it
1: was really eye-opening to have to go buy furniture when you're used to your parents owning a furniture store and you just have whatever furniture you want. It's pricey. It's very expensive. Yeah,
0: and you know, yeah. It's like, I like the idea of having, you know, you don't want to have bad furniture. You want to have furniture that's like well-made and, but it's the kind of thing, like I want to buy it once, yeah, not think about it for like 20 years at least. Yeah. But it doesn't usually, it doesn't always work out like that.
1: I tend to find mine on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell my parents. <laughs> it's a sacrilege.
0: Um, so what else, man? I mean, you know, so you're getting by you've, You're man. I mean, we're all trying to at least everybody in the literary community, there might be some outliers. I guess there's always outliers, people who aren't as bothered by it as I am. And as the people I tend to talk with on this show are, um, but I think that the people who I talk with, like writerly people, you know, you're doing a lot of reading, you're doing a lot of paying attention, right? I mean, and you have some, hopefully have some critical thinking skills and it's not that hard to, it's not that hard to parse, Right. I don't want to give you, people you who have—I don't so. want to give people who have figured out that Trump's an <laughs> asshole too much credit. It's not some like incredible fucking feat of intellect, you know. But it's uh, it still needs to happen more often. How do you see it ending?
1: I don't know. It's been interesting, actually. The one thing that I really did not see. Like, I figured that he was just going to be elected, and then he was just going to hand running the country off to Bannon. It never occurred to me he actually wanted to run the country. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of blew my mind when they got rid of Bannon. I mean, got rid of, in quotes, who knows? But I was like, wait, so he actually wants to do this? He wants to make these decisions himself? I'd never... So... Yeah, when that happened, I was like, I don't actually know what's happening anymore. Right, <laughs> like my understanding of this situation.
0: Well, Gorka's gone too now, so like you've got like the two. Yeah, and then but Stephen, Stephen Miller is Miller's still, there. still there, so there's still a Nazi on the train, like an yeah. explicit the like, lizard you know, man. Yeah, but it's like, uh, you know, when it comes to Trump, it feels like whenever he excommunicates someone, they're never really gone. Yeah, they're just functioning in a new role, maybe externally. So it's maybe easier to hide them, yeah. and with Bannon. Uh, you're in a situation where he is his own little kind of got his own little like media fiefdom yeah. and can become like a messaging tool. Yeah. And then there's Sinclair broadcasting, which is like Trump friendly and owns like an uh, unsettling amount of our airwaves, yeah. national Enquirer is in the tank Fox news is obviously like Russian state television. So like, he's got like a huge media apparatus. Um, you know, and here's something that I, I'm always dying to say. With regard to politics and media is that there's always this false equivalence drawn between like the Fox news is of the world and the MSNBCs of the world or the New York times is of the world and the wall street journals or whatever it is. But like, I feel like, especially with Fox news and like MSNBC as a prime example, like in some general ways, yes, they're similar, but like that's apples and oranges. It drives me crazy when people are like, they're the exact same, Mm -hmm. you know, it's such like a lazy minded thing to do. And, uh, I don't think it's helpful.
1: No. I mean, everything is just completely, people feel like it's completely out of their control, which it largely is. So then I'd find a way to excuse ignoring it. That's all that is. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I used
1: to, you ask how I think this will end. I used to think uh, that he was just going to die. Like he was just going to have a heart attack. Like how could he stand this? But he seems to actually be enjoying it. I used to think he was just going to stroke out pretty soon under the pressure, but I don't know that that's going to happen. The pictures of him he looks healthier than he did before. you know, I think he thrives on the conflict and on the, the power. of course on the power in the spotlight
0: yeah, it's the power in the spotlight. I mean he really loves i mean like it's a like how do you assess? his care, like what's happening to him behaviorally. Like what, like he had to have been mistreated as a child or like, you know what I'm saying? I always want there to be like some sort of narrative that I can latch on to that will help me explain how somebody could turn out like this.
1: And there are could, lots of assholes in the world though. I know. I think some of them are just born. I don't know. Who cares?
0: Yeah. Fuck that guy. He's <laughs> got to get him out of there. Yeah. Um. Well, Ben, I'm always happy to talk with you. I'm glad we can get you over here on short notice. I, for people listening, I have such a uh, busy schedule nowadays with this new day job of mine that I, I, you know, scheduling the podcast is always like flying by the seat of my pants. And so, I basically texted you earlier this week and was like, "I'll give you like an hour's notice. <laughs> I'll text you and we can do this." And and sure enough, I texted Ben. Uh, it's Sunday today. I texted him this afternoon. His his response was, "Is this the time?" <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost like a like a dead man walking scenario or something. But uh, I appreciate you coming over here on short notice. Congratulations on this new collection of stories. Um, I wish all good things for you and a uh, true fan of, of both you as a, a friend and a person and also of your work. And uh, I just look forward to, to seeing what you do next.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. And also, thanks for the ride. Of course. <laughs>
0: All right, guys, there you go. That is Ben Lori. His new story collection, Tales of Falling and Flying, is available from Penguin. Official publication date, September 5th, 2017. Tales of Falling and Flying. Get your copy. You won't regret it. You can find Ben online at BenLurie.com. He's on Twitter. His handle there is at BenLurie. He's on Facebook, Instagram, Goodreads. It's all over the place. Ben Laurie. track him down. Tales of Falling and Flying. And his uh, first collection, Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day, also available from Penguin. So, great to talk with him. I don't know if you caught it, but uh, I gave him a ride. I was out driving around. I texted him. I was like, can you do the podcast now? And he said, yeah, but I need a ride. So I gave him a ride. Went over and picked him up. Door-to-door service at the Other People podcast. Really do wish that I could build shit. Like I wish I had like skills to build a boat, do stuff with my hands. Women love that. I've always felt deficient in that way. Fix things, use tools, crafty. I feel like there needs to be one more day in the week. It needs to be like an eighth day that's how it feels to me there's never enough time always racing one day my ship's going to come in I really am just going to buy a place in the middle of nowhere I want to live like that I want to try living like that for a while beautiful natural setting easy access to nature no neighbors nothing to do would I go crazy is my question Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music, as always. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. Get the app on your device. It's the best way to listen. If you want to uh, donate, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. What am I forgetting? If you want to write me, it's letters at otherppl.com. Send me a letter. Tell me something.